0: Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com.
1: And welcome to the PR Week. PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director, of PR Week. Going to guide you gently through another show, another busy week. And um, delighted to have as our guest Corey Dade, who's the VP of Comms at WSP USA. So, welcome to the show, Corey. How are you doing?
0: I'm well, Steve. How are you?
1: Yeah, pretty good. For me. We won an award yesterday at PR Week for the best website at the Neil Awards. So we're uh, just recovering a little from a bit of celebrating yesterday. So, uh, but very happy. Of course, the podcast is a key part of the
0: website. So, yeah. Congratulations.
1: Yeah. And Frank Washgate, my co-host, is here. We had a couple of drinks last night to celebrate. Frank, didn't we? It was good fun. Yeah. Yeah, we did know. It was, uh, and might I say, well-deserved. So, yeah, uh, yeah, like things so we'll pat ourselves on the back for a change,
2: but and we yeah. should and we should give credit to all the behind the scenes team, especially uh Byron Kittle, our our exceptional web editor and coordinator who uh, you know really worked hard on this project.
1: is a legend is Byron and his yes, he com- is. his comment one being told about the award win was neat, yeah, that's Byron. <laughs> Succinct and to the point. Okay, so we're going to talk to Corey. Then we'll get into some uh, topical news stories. Edelman vet uh, Russell Dubner, new job for him. WPP unveiled its Q1 financials. Interesting to see what they said. Elon Musk, everyone's talking about him taking over Twitter. uh, New role in IPG for Jackie Stevenson from the Brooklyn Brothers. And, uh, yeah, well, we won an award. Kind of covered that, I suppose. And then we've opened up entries to our PR week Purpose Awards. But uh, Corey, let's start with you. For those who don't know WSP, I mean, you're one of those big companies that does massive projects, but pro- maybe not not everyone knows about. But infrastructure is really the core of what you do. And obviously, that is so topical at the moment. So just give us a little sort of uh, intro, introduction to what WSP does.
0: Sure. WSP is, um, so we are a Montreal, Canada-based company. The U.S. company is the biggest operating company within WSP, and we've been growing fairly rapidly over the last decade or so. Many people who are in New York who may have an idea about this probably remember a company called Parsons Rinkerhoff. That was one of the legacy companies we acquired some years ago. But we are a full-service engineering firm. Uh, we, do, uh, we specialize in design of major infrastructure we're known usually by our projects, unless for anything else. So, we uh, design the World Trade Center Memorial Tower, for example. We have managed the project in California, the California High Speed Rail. It's the only high speed rail of its kind in the United States that's in construction. And, and we have uh, 13,000 employees and more than 200 offices in the United States. Uh, We're the largest environmental services firm in the world and uh by environmental services i mean climate resilience and sustainability climate mitigation and adaptation um and you know we are trying to lead frankly lead frankly our clients and communities across the united states and the world in transitioning to a green future frankly
1: yeah big topics and so much to dig into beneath what you said there and clearly Uh, infrastructure's high on the agenda at the moment. I think the American Society of Civil Engineers report card gave the US a C minus, I think last year in its uh, report, but that's up from D plus in 2017, but it's still not great, is it? And uh, we saw the 1.2 trillion infrastructure bill come in last November so how is that going to change things so that's a, a massive amount of money presumably that's good news for you but it's good news for the country isn't it because the the, the roads and bridges I think anyone who travels around can sort of often sometimes go under the Holland Tunnel and go uh, over to Jersey and wonder if it's going to fall down you know while we're going through it it's it's some of the and some of the roads look you know they need a bit of attention don't they so how are you how are you feeling about all that at the moment
0: I think You know, this infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was passed is a game changer by any definition. It's up there with, you know, the sort of uh, legendary programs uh, that you can compare with, like the New Deal and uh, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration or the uh, so-called war on poverty uh, that Lyndon B. Johnson brought when he was president in the 60s. You're talking about funding that's going to remake or update really the the built world as we call it of the united states roads bridges broadband uh expanding access to clean water expanding access to broadband in rural communities um, you know our roads and bridges a lot of people talk about our our you know roads and bridges um but it's really about improving And I would say, on one hand, it's improving the infrastructure that exists now that's crumbling, that creates public safety challenges. But it's really about being able to bring our infrastructure to a point where, as we plan for infrastructure over the long term, figuring out what our needs are as Americans for the next two or three generations and how we can plan infrastructure more effectively going forward so that it's more equitable, so that it opens opportunities for people to access jobs, to access better schools, better health care. It's about being able to bring infrastructure to the point where it can control for the changes in climate over the long term. This is kind of where we're headed with infrastructure. It's not just about you know, pay, repaving a particular road. It's thinking about where our society is going to be 100 years from now, and how we can get our kind of public works in the United States to reflect those needs over the next couple of generations.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's a bit. It is really big stuff, and it's going to shape the future, isn't it? Do you think? What's the? I mean. Obviously, everything gets political these days, doesn't it? And the infrastructure bill took a long time to go through, even though there's, there can't be much doubt that it's needed. How soon are we going to see things? I know some of the projects have started already. How soon do you think we'll see some real change? Because these are, a lot of these projects obviously take years um, in the making. So how how do you see it playing out over the next couple of years?
0: So I think what we'll see uh, in the in the short term is funding awards. So it used to be that the, the, the common concept was anything that's sh- quote-unquote shovel-ready, uh, but there's a shift now. It's about shovel-worthy. So it's not just looking at sort of what's in the pipeline in, in states and cities and communities across the country and just throwing money at it. It's actually taking a smarter approach to figure out what's actually needed. So uh, I think in the shorter term, what we're going to see is the actual awarding of money, so the grants that come out of the federal government and come down to the state and local levels. Um, and we'll see ground being broken uh, progressively over the next two years. Uh, funding awards are already being made now. And I think over the next year, certainly through this year, that's what the focus is on. Starting to get these, these uh, funds allocated. I mean, you've got $550 billion in new spending over the next five years. That's on top of the existing funding that's gonna be allocated to projects that already exist. So there's a lot that has to happen. And I think right now, over the next year to year and a half, it's really focused on securing the funds down to the state and local level. And progressively in everyone's communities over the next year and a half or so, you'll start to see bulldozers. You'll start to see cranes swimming. We'll start to see actually the work come to light. But it is going to be a little bit slow going at first, um, but uh, the end result will be what we hope is kind of perpetual uh, groundbreakings over the next several years
1: transformation yeah yes yeah, it's, it's it's shocking to think that there are areas you know quite a few areas of the united states where you, people don't have access to clean water you know i mean people think of flint obviously as a high profile example the, you know there are lots of places that don't have access and you mentioned broadband there are some real spotty areas in the in the country uh, so that the, these are all things that there's inequalities aren't there everybody doesn't have equal access so important work there you mentioned that you're Work really is defined by the projects, you know, the the high-profile ones. What are there? A couple of really major projects that are going to happen as a result of this bill that we we're going to look out for, or is it much more spread across thinly across the whole country?
0: Well, I think we don't know exactly yet how that how all the money is going to be used. That's a decision that will be made by um, elected officials and. frankly, uh, you know, city and state and county leaders across the country. Um, We, in our position, we have the role of actually uh, bidding on the work. So now there there are any number of projects that we have already won bids for that are waiting on funding so that that those projects can begin. So they're they're really innumerable. you know, in 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 major cities and jurisdictions across the country, they're all kinds. I don't, I don't. I think it's a little premature to to say just yet which of our specific projects will get funded. I think what I can tell you is that the focus of this uh, legislation and funding actually has some new areas of interest that are quite interesting. You know, equity, for example, is going to be one of the key areas that this funding that this bill is gonna actually address. So it's really taking equity and climate and using those as, frankly, new litmus tests for whether or not a project will get federal funding. So it used to be equity and climate issues, frankly, were not priorities in how funding was awarded. But now what we're looking at is, you know, the federal government isn't going to, say, fund a particular road project simply because a local jurisdiction says it's needed. They're gonna have to reach, frankly, a higher bar to justify why that funding is needed. So does that particular road project address equity issues in certain communities? Because what we have to do, what at WSP, what we're helping our clients understand is that in order to compete for federal funding, they need to be ready to make the right arguments and position themselves accordingly. So in the past, what we know about infrastructure is infrastructure has been one of the key ways in which segregation, segregation by race, segregation by income, inequities have been able to fester in the United States. You know, um, in the United States, we have innumerable stories of lower income communities or black populations in certain big urban centers where they get bisected by a new highway project, for example, that decimates communities or makes it harder for certain communities to get access to transportation, which means if you can't get access to transportation, you may not be able to get access to a job or access to adequate healthcare or access to um, better schools. So with this new uh, influx of funding with the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, equity is going to be a watchword. And at our company, we've actually built out our services where we bring equity into the planning stage with our clients as they start positioning themselves for this kind of funding. And this is, this is kind of a new area. This is kind of the, the, the new frontier about how uh, infrastructure is going to be funded. It's not just considering kind of the history of inequities. It's also going to place at the center of planning around infrastructure the needs of a particular community. Often, how infrastructure is planned and executed didn't always take the community that's affected and prioritize their needs.
1: Potentially really exciting stuff. So if we can get it right, it's going to be uh, game-changing. From a communicator's point of view and someone who's based in D.C. as well, It must've been a very busy time and will continue to be. Just give us a flavor of what you've been doing, you know, as as the head of comms over at uh, WSP. And I know you look after corporate marketing as well. So tell us some of the things you were involved in around the bill and then uh, moving forward.
0: So I think for us, I think at WSP, um, you know, first it was coming out of COVID. So as far as communications was concerned, it was really about, You know, the way we go to market starts with how we communicate and engage our employees. And if we're taking care of our employees and our colleagues, then our colleagues will take care of our clients. And so being able to keep our workforce uh, engaged, support them during COVID, during kind of all the challenges that came with that, that was really absolutely critical. Um, I think we did a really good job of that and being able to understand their concerns and how we could meet them where they are so that they could be present for our clients, but also be present for their families and their loved ones. Um, It's positioned us well so that from a communications perspective, when we've been going, as we've been going to market over these last several months, we've been able to take uh, sort of some of the principles around our internal communications and actually start pushing them out to our clients and to our communities. Because, you know, for our company, you know, we we help design and, and build brick and mortar, obviously, but we don't have a lot of brick and mortar as a company. Our greatest asset, our greatest service is our brain power and our expertise. So we've really put a priority on promoting the expertise of our people, our unique internal culture that's built around collaboration. It's built around telling stories of our uh, kind of unique uh, diversity. The fact that we bring sort of diverse viewpoints and perspectives to bear to solve kind of the biggest challenges that are facing society. Challenges around equity, as we've talked about. Challenges around uh, climate. Um, And, you know, as we, you know, the challenge always is to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace. And in our industry, with the infrastructure built, there is stiff competition to be able to deliver for communities on these major infrastructure projects. And we believe strongly that continuing to tell our story about our inclusive culture, about our diverse culture, about our commitment to Uh, solving big societal problems for our communities is really key. You know, we are a global company, but the truth of the matter is our sort of secret sauce, as it were, is really the fact that we are members of the communities that we serve. We love telling the stories of our people who are, you know, these uh, project managers of major, major, massive multi-billion dollar projects in the United States. But for them, it's personal because they live in the communities that are going to be served by these projects, whether it's a a new uh, service line at L.A. Metro um, or whether it's uh, the new Moynihan train station uh, that's uh, that's built out and expanded the capacity of Penn Station in New York City. You know, we are Mm -hmm. users of these services and we work really hard. To communicate the fact that we are personally invested in these outcomes, we're not just there, kind of as an occupied as an occupied force that's doing the work, and then we go away when it's done. That's not us. It's not what we're about.
1: Yeah, and you used to work at Bechtel with a, f- a friend of the pod, uh, Charlene Wheelis, I think, and uh, I guess they were slightly more on the doing side uh, in terms of actually doing the construction projects, whereas WSP is more, a little bit more on the sort of management of the projects, I suppose, would be the, the main difference in your roles, uh, you know, between those two companies.
0: Yeah. I'm, so, yeah, I was at, I was at Bechtel, and, and I love Charlene. Charlene hired me at Bechtel. Um, and, uh, you know, I learned a lot from Charlene as a communicator. Uh, Bechtel is a unique place. It's one of those legacy companies. Uh, you know, Bechtel helped build the Hoover Dam. So they kind yeah. of were pioneers in this space. Uh, yes, Bechtel is um, uh, a company that also does construction. That's kind of the main difference. At WSP, we're, we are a what we call a pure play engineering firm where we don't actually do the construction. We manage the construction. So we are yeah. project managers. We're frankly beyond that, you know we're scientists, we're geologists, we are environmental scientists, we're engineers. You know, we are kind of the the Swiss army knife in engineering, where we come and bring solutions to any set of challenges that clients have.
1: Well, it's good to find out more about it because it is absolutely crucial to the future of the country. And it's really interesting. And one day I will have to get you to tell me why every single building in New York's got covered in scaffolding. But maybe (laughs) uh, that's one for another show, maybe. Um, Last question. Do you operate in China, Corey?
0: No, we don't have uh, we don't have business in China.
1: Um, right. so it's interesting to see there that the President Xi has just gone on an all-out campaign about infrastructure in China, and I'm I'm guessing the scale of that uh, will be immense as well. So uh, it's uh, yeah, lots of stuff going on around the globe. All right. Thanks for talking us through that, um, and uh, look forward to seeing how it plays out and and the impact it's going to have on the country. But uh, let's get on to the news story. Sprank on the move. On the move. Edelman's former North America CEO Russell Dubner has got a new gig. Uh, tell us all about it.
2: Yeah, and um look, this is a big surprise. Last year when Russell Dubner left Edelman, I mean, he was kind of one of the people that was always mentioned when, you know, the next generation of leadership took over, if it wasn't a family member, it could be Russell Dubner. So, I was surprised when he left at the end of the uh, year last year, but he has joined Boston Consulting Group. Uh it's he is going to be their first global chief communications officer, leading all of their communications team around the world uh, and reporting up to uh, CEO Christoph Schweitzer. Um, 28 years at Edelman, that is a, you you generally do not see somebody stay at agencies uh, that long. Since he left, he went on a bit of a sabbatical uh, tried to earn his judo black belt, which he told our reporter, Alita Stan, he is still working on. So, oh, yeah. uh, we'll see what he's up to at Boston Consulting Group. We'd
1: better not annoy so, Russell Wind, um if we uh, write any more stories about him, but uh, yeah, good luck to him in the new gig. Actually, I'm not surprised he's joined the consultancy sector. I thought he might end up there. So uh, interesting to see that he went to BCG. Um, Corey, you use agencies, don't you use, I think weber Shandwick's your main agency, but um, do you also work closely with the consulting firms too in, in your sort of, because again, I'm guessing there's all sorts of partnerships in your world and everybody kind of works with each other and maybe also competes with each other.
0: Yes, it, it is very incestuous in that regard. Um, because these, these projects that we work on are so multifaceted, we have any number of junior uh, joint ventures with other otherwise competitors, or um, we take a certain piece of the work, and another competitor takes another piece, and we work together. So the collaboration is is kind of free flowing in that regard. Yes. Yeah. Even on the communication side, we work with uh, we work with consultants. I, I came from a consulting background myself.
1: Uh, so you were a person, yeah.
0: I was with I was at Burson Marsteller, uh, which yeah. is now called Burson, Cone and Wolf. Um we work with Weber Shanwick here in the US. We also work with Carol Cohn on purpose. Oh, uh,
1: great. Yeah.
0: And we 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 do uh we do wonderful work with them and that's really in our purpose-oriented work, our ESG-oriented work. Um so I'm I'm a big believer in the the power of consultants if used properly, frankly. <laughs>
1: Yes, for sure. <laughs> um, actually, we might as well talk about it here. We are—we are, Our Purpose Awards are open for entries. Um, We're on, I think, the fourth year of those, and uh, we'll be back in person to give those out in Chicago on October the 11th. That's all part of PR Decoded. But the point of the Purpose Awards is to really celebrate those because the playbook still being written is to celebrate those examples that others can aspire to so it's always some really inspiring campaigns individuals and teams on display there so we're looking forward to that and looking forward to being back in person staying on the agency front frank uh, WPP's unveiled its Q1 financials and this is coming about a week before we put our agency business report out so it's always interesting to see what the numbers are telling us
2: yeah, and uh, they tell a positive story for the PR arm over at WPP. Um, so Q1, 2022, like-for-like like revenue in the PR arm uh, is up 14.1%. Overall PR revenue up 27.4% to about 262 million uh, pounds. Eight uh, Hill & Knowlton Strategies was named among the holding company's strongest performing agencies uh, in at least the UK uh, in the period. So um, the holding company also said that the PR division has very strong momentum and it has outperformed uh, its other divisions, whether that's the uh, the creative agencies in the global integrated uh, agency division or the specialist firms. Um, not not a shocker. I mean, I think maybe at one time we might have seen. The PR firms outperform the other firms and may and be a bit pleasantly surprised. But I think after what we've been hearing, putting together our agency business report and just the day-to-day work, um, that, that's really not a surprise this quarter. I mean, PR has definitely outperformed uh, creative in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, 14% is across, uh, you know, a, was it 1.3 billion, I think? Something around that there PR business—that's a—that's a big rise, and it reflects what we're seeing. I think we'll we'll fall at about twenty percent across the whole sector in in next week's report, which is coming out on Tuesday. So it's really fascinating read. So I do uh, uh, advise everyone to have a look at it. But that, those numbers definitely in line, and all ships are rising. Corey, do you feel like this is PR's time? It just feels like you—you know—we've talked about some of these things today: purpose. Um, senior counsel, employee engagement, all of these things, crisis, um, business transformation, all of these things are right in the wheelhouse of the communicator, aren't they? And now you've, you're finding yourself in that, you know, at the table with the s- most senior execs and advising on strategy moving forward. It's good It's good times, isn't it?
0: Well, good is relative, I think. <laughs> um, I think the the challenge with, you know, in the U.S., I think the, the major sort of Strategic comms firms have had challenges with their models. Um, I think in the U.S., kind of the margins are always something that are a challenge, frankly. And I think part of it is because of how you have an emergence, particularly in you know the bigger cities like Washington D.C., you have an emergence of small to mid-sized agencies who have learned how to compete with the bigger firms or and charge their clients less money. And so what I think is for now that I'm on the in-house side, you know, you have in-house comms departments that feel less allegiance to the big firms. And when they see quality and the ability to execute in smaller firms, they will go with it. So I think the competition is stiffer in the U S market now and has been for some time for the major firms. Now, all that said, I think as far as the work, I think it potentially can be the time for PR in the sense that, you know, there's a higher set of needs that companies have, employers have, um, that really get to reputation, that get to integrating. You talked about purpose, that integrate sort of purpose, reputation, internal culture, aligning that with the business strategy. And I think often, historically, I would say that uh, you know, comms has been sometimes disconnected from business strategy for a particular company, uh, for particular companies. And now I think you're seeing more of an integration and communicators are uniquely suited to kind of stand in that void and help CEOs understand that they're the ones who can help bring change. Who can help the company become more agile who can help the company understand and embrace a stronger value proposition and drive culture because all that actually equates to stronger business performance and I think that you know the the right comms people can really stand over and can make the connections necessary between the execution on the business side the sales side, the human resources side and the human capital side and really help CEOs drive business transformation that really starts with their people. I think that's the, that's the unique and kind of exciting proposition I think we have before us.
1: Yeah. Amen to that for sure. I agree with you totally. And uh, it's kind of the glue that holds everything together, or, or you could say the liquid that runs through all parts of the organization. So yeah, good times. Um, and uh, the industry stepping up and really uh, playing its part and making making a difference. Frank, Elon
2: Musk, looks like he's going to take over Twitter. What do we think about that and tell us all about that story? I think it's going to be really interesting. And here's what I'm looking for is to see uh, how he defines uh, harassment and uh, hate speech and calls to violence on the platform because he calling for more free speech um, but I think we all know harassment, I think in this industry, especially of, of female journalists is a, is a big problem on that platform. Um, I think her, you know, spam bots, I think are, are a big problem, which he has addressed. You know, he said he wants to authenticate everybody, but I'm interested to see where he finds the line between, you know, what is printable, so to speak on Twitter and what is not, uh, because, you know, for all the talk of free speech, I mean, it's, it, that doesn't mean anything, uh without accountability so where is he going to put the line about what's acceptable on the platform and what's not and i think that will tell us a lot about uh what brands and advertisers how comfortable they're going to be uh with their content and and their you know their creative their videos whatever you want to call it uh alongside what people are saying on the platform
1: yeah i agree i think with uh, elon musk you can you tend to just expect the unexpected don't you so whatever people think he's going to do he'll probably do something a bit different i would really like him to bring in authentication i think having anonymous people that's Having anonymity there is what really fuels a lot of this abuse. And I think if people had to say stuff under their own uh, name, I think it would go a long way towards fixing that. And I, I'm a strong believer in that. The edit button, we'd love to have that for sure. Is, it, is the deal definitely going to happen? I mean, there's a sort of assumption that it's all going to go through, but there's still a few hoops to go through, aren't there?
2: There are still a few hoops. Um, the EU, has, um, their top regulator, has um, has you know said... Has made some comments that they have to take certain things seriously, uh, or they can they can face a crackdown there. It looks like he would be uh, Musk would be able to take over the company late summer early fall. I mean, yeah, deals have fallen apart before, but it looks like it's going to happen. What do you think, Corey?
0: Well, you know, as a former journalist for many years, uh, you know, I've seen uh, I've seen Twitter.
1: You got a proper job, yeah yeah proper I, wage.
0: <laughs> That's right. um, you know I, I i think you know i've experienced competing against twitter and then you know being able to use twitter to you know do my job um you know i think you know i think it's a there's so many unanswerable questions right now but i think when we talk about free speech i think it's important for people to remember that in the strictest sense free speech really means in the united states Freedom from government censorship. That's really what it is. It doesn't mean that there are no consequences that come with speech. Yeah. It just means that the government cannot dictate or control an individual's expression. Now, once you get away from the role of government in that, you know, all bets are off. And it's really about how society sets the norms. Frank talked about where is the line, right? Where's the line between harassment? Uh, that before you get to harassment, hate speech, et cetera. And, you know, the notion that free speech should mean that there are no consequences is really a false premise. And I think it's a false premise that's been politicized. It's been weaponized in one way or another. If you're an employer and, you know, uh, someone uh, writes a memo that is perceived to be harassing, um some people may at that company may not believe it's harassing others may believe it is but if if that's the case then you know that employer is probably going to take some kind of disciplinary action against the writer of that particular memo so there are consequences to be had for speech speech is not free in the strictest sense of it um i think that going forward you know the the concern and fear that many people have is that you know the uh, twitter will revert back to kind of where it was as a platform in say 2016 or before that when you know harassment misinformation was so weaponized that there was no uh, there was no value system set for truth and accuracy and the question is how does a company like twitter establish a value system that it's systems and operation can reinforce because really we're talking about values here. Mm. Do we, as a society value truth? do we as a society value accuracy to your point, Steve about sort of anonymity, do we value accountability, which is to say, if you're going to say a certain thing, uh, you need to be able to be held accountable because you can't be anonymous. I, I don't have the answer for that, but I think that's, those are the seminal questions that Twitter as a business is going to have to answer.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, myself and Frank as journalists, if we say something libelous, we, we could get sued. And so could you when you were a journalist, you know. And That's correct been kind of annoying over the years when facebook and some of the other platforms really attempt to get a free pass because they claim they're not media owners and, and maybe they're not a traditional media owner but they are a platform for disseminating information and they they should be held to a bit more account i think so um yeah it's a there's a lot of layers to this but um one thing's for sure it'll be an interesting ride with elon musk sort of overseeing it so a uh, very very smart guy and uh, whatever you think of him and uh, he, uh, and it'd be interesting to know really why he's buying it you know is there a, some really smart reason around data or something like that what, uh, that he's seen that maybe nobody else has seen but uh, yeah it should be a lot of fun to follow finally this week Frank uh brooklyn brothers uh jackie Stevenson she's got a new role within uh, the interpublic group and Brooklyn Brothers was part of Golan wasn't it Well, it still is. yeah
2: Yes, it is. And uh, so two updates on Brooklyn Brothers for you. Um, Jackie Stevenson, co-founder of the agency, is going to become EMEA, Chief Growth Officer uh, in Interpublic Group. Europe and the UK are the second biggest market uh, for Interpublic. So she's been founding partner and global CEO of the Brooklyn Brothers. Um, And as you just mentioned, the firm was acquired uh, by Golden uh in 2016 and has offices in london new york and brazil not the only move there though simon poet i hope i'm pronouncing his name uh properly uh is also departing the brooklyn brothers uh and he was the executive creative director uh at the firm for the last three years
1: yeah brooklyn brothers created in london not brooklyn uh that got p- a few people confused when Golan brought them out. But, uh, yeah, well, congrats to Jackie. She's a terrific person and a great ballroom dancer as well, actually, so in her spare time. So uh, looking forward to seeing what she does there in that new role. Listen, Corey, it's been great to have you on the show. Great to chat and um, interested to follow this whole infrastructure process and uh, how it's going to play out, and hopefully it'll be great for the country.
0: Steve of Frank, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Always uh, good to have you on. And uh, don't don't forget the Healthcare Summit and Awards, the PR Week's inaugural Healthcare Summit. That's on the 10th of May. So uh, get your tickets for that, because it's going to be a lot of fun and really interesting. Our global awards are in London on the 18th of May. I'm heading over there for the first time in two years. Really looking forward to that. Uh, The Brand Film Awards, that's going to be a virtual event that will be on the 26th of May. 40 Under 40 is open for submissions. That's the next generation of leaders, and uh, the first deadline is looming, so do uh, make sure you get get your uh, submission in for that. And then, uh, yeah, we mentioned PR Decoded and the Purpose Awards. They'll be in Chicago in uh, October uh the 10th uh, the 11th and 12th and now finally the bellwether survey it's a big survey we do with boston university um we need as many of you to take it as possible to make sure it's even more credible than normal so do take a few minutes to take that survey but that's all we've got time for we'll see you next time on the pr week
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.